1: We speak often in the Twilight Zone podcast about the messages within the episodes, the life lessons that Rod Serling is imparting on the audience. There are episodes that take a stance against big societal problems like prejudice, and there are episodes that comment on the more internal human struggles, like finding your place in the world. We've heard in the feedback section from teachers who use the Twilight Zone to illustrate these things to their students. This show that's now over 50 years old is still being used today to teach those lessons. I for one am glad of it, and no one could ever say that it wasn't Rod Serling's intention to highlight these things using the show. That was what he was doing from the beginning, and It's one of the great strengths of the Twilight Zone. But could it ever go too far? Could it ever be too preachy? The director of tonight's episode of the Twilight Zone said about it. This was Rod in one of his messianic moods. It was too uptight with its own self-righteousness, I think. I found it an interesting idea. I think the thesis was excellent but I think its devices and its general style of writing were a little too pompous. When the episode begins, if it weren't for the Twilight Zone opening credits, you'd be forgiven for thinking that you tuned into some light-hearted early 60s sitcom. How could this be accused of being too preachy? There's a quirky rendition of Happy Birthday playing and four couples crowd around a dinner table celebrating the birthday of Dr. Bill Stockton. A friend, but also someone who has a positive effect on all of the lives around the table.
2: No birthday celebration is complete without an after dinner speech. Oh, Oh, no, no, Jerry. And so let's get to the business at hand, the honoring of Dr. William Stockton. Now,
3: Jerry Harlow, you sit down.
2: Who today is one year older, and admits to being over 21. (laughs) And who in the short space of 20 years has taken care of not only us, our children, but even our grandchildren.
0: Whose grandchildren?
2: (laughs) As a matter of fact, I doubt if there's a single person in this room who still does not owe the good doctor for a visit or two. What about the hammering at all hours of the night? That's another thing we owe him for. Ah, yes, yes. The good doctor's bomb shelter. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to forgive him for all that.
1: So, all very nice, all very pleasant. A group of people, friends, with clear affection for each other. Surely nothing could come between friendships like these. Well, we're about to find out when we enter the shelter. Four
4: minutes ago, the President of the United States made the following announcement, I quote. At 11.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, both our distant early warning line and ballistics early warning line reported radar evidence of unidentified flying objects flying due southeast. As of this moment, we have been unable to determine the nature of these objects, but for the time being, in the interest of national safety, we are declaring a state of yellow alert. The civil defense authorities request that if you have a shelter already prepared, go there at once. If you do not have a shelter, use your time to move supplies of food, water, medicine and other supplies to a central place.
0: What you're about to watch is
4: a nightmare.
0: It is not meant to be prophetic. It need not happen. It's the fervent and urgent prayer of all men of goodwill that it never shall happen. But in this place, in this moment, it does happen. This is the Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on 29th of September, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Lamont Johnson. Now, I had in my head that Lamont Johnson had directed The Twilight Zone before this, but in fact, he hasn't. This was the first of eight episodes that I do, which includes some very notable ones like Five Characters in Search of an Exit, Nothing in the Dark, and kick the can. He would have been about 40 when he came to the Twilight Zone with a few directing credits under his belt, but not a huge amount because he came to the business initially as an actor. One of his most famous roles was in a radio version of Tarzan in the early 50s where he played the title role. And he kept directing throughout most of his life, not in any great volume, but steadily and two of his most notable works were the acclaimed TV movies Wallenberg, A Hero's Story in 1985 and Lincoln in 1988 and he was married to the actress, Toni Johnson who only had two credits to her name Crime and Punishment and The Screaming Skull and they lived long lives together until Toni's death in 2009 and Lamont followed her the next year in 2010. So like I said earlier, you would be forgiven for thinking that you were tuning in to a sitcom or other lighthearted fair at the beginning of the episode, which I like very much because I think it's very much by design. Get your audience into a nice, comfortable, familiar place, then pull the rug right out from under them. Now, the radio announcement that they hear, I've read, was actually voiced uncredited by James Cobain. Now, I can't find definite word on that, but it certainly sounds like him. And then we see our couples running down the street back to their homes. Now, these exterior shots were on the MGM lot, which is the same street that we see in Elegy and Walking Distance. I have to comment on the staging of the Rod Serling opening narration Probably one of the worst I've seen so far I mean the content is just fine It's just that in an ideal world we'd have had the couples running away in panic down the street As Rod Serling coolly walks towards us Giving us his narration They would often employ this really fast whip pan effect when Serling wasn't actually there on the set and then they'd create some mock-up of the location for him to stand in. But I think this one is quite clumsily done with the camera sort of wobbling to the left in the first scene and then a really obvious cut and then the camera going at a different speed before it settles on Rod Sailing. Now the words I'm quite happy with, by now especially so soon after the episode two, we're quite familiar with the this-could-happen style of opening narration. But this one especially is quite timely, but we'll come back to that later. Bill and Grace Stockton with their son Paulie are busy filling containers with water and taking all of the canned goods down into the shelter. Now, the catalyst for this is a message that they heard over the Connelrad system. Now, what Connelrad is or was was a method of emergency broadcasting to the public of the United States. And what it stands for is Control on Electromagnetic Radiation. American listeners of a certain age will probably remember this, but for the rest of us, not so much. So, we'll just have a brief history lesson from Wikipedia. It says, prior to 1951, there was no systematic way for the US government to communicate with citizens during an emergency. However, broadcasters would typically interrupt normal programming to issue emergency bulletins, as happened during the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the first successful tornado warning in 1948. Such bulletins were the forerunners to Connelrad Connelrad had a simple system for alerting the public and other downstream stations consisting of a sequence of shutting the station off for five seconds, returning to the air for five seconds, again shutting down for five seconds, then returning to the air again for five seconds, then transmitting a tone for 15 seconds. Key stations would be alerted directly. All other broadcast stations, would monitor a designated station in that area. In the event of an emergency, all United States television and FM radio stations were required to stop broadcasting. Upon alert, most AM medium wave stations shut down. The stations that stayed on the air would transmit on either 640 or 1240 kHz. They would transmit for several minutes, then go off the air, and another station would take over on the same frequency in a round robin chain. This was to confuse enemy aircraft who might be navigating using radio direction finding. By law radio sets manufactured between 1953 and 1963 had these two frequencies marked by the triangle in circle CD mark symbol of civil defense. So there you go all a bit wordy but generally It means that this system would take over the broadcast and alert the populace to whatever disaster was impending. So Dr. Bill Stockton and his family have things under control. They're scared, but their focus is getting into the shelter. But early on, the episode asks a very good question about how useful these shelters are anyway. Now, if it is a bomb, there's no assurance it'll land near us.
3: And if it doesn't, we'll but be But if in. it does, Bill, New York is only 40 miles away. And New York's going to get it, we know that. So we'll get it too, all of it. The poison, the radiation, the whole mess, we'll get it. We'll be in a shelter, Grace, and with any luck at all, we'll survive. We've got food and water enough to last us for two weeks. Maybe even longer if we use it wisely. Then what, Bill? Then what? We crawl out of here like gophers to tiptoe through all that rubble up above? The rubble and the ruin and the bodies of our friends? Oh Bill, why is it so necessary to survive? What's the good of it?
1: So do bomb shelters just delay the inevitable? It's one thing to be in a shelter designed for the president that would probably keep him going for years but these small home shelters just don't have that kind of capacity. We'll hear later on what Rod Sailing's thoughts on that are. We do have a lot of characters in this episode, so I'm only gonna do whistle-stop bios on each one. Dr. Bill Stockton was played by Larry Gates and he was born in 1915, but didn't really get his big break until 1956 when he starred on Broadway in the comedy, Bell, Book and Candle, opposite Rex Harrison, and from then on he became a very prolific character actor. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he says, it was a first-rate script by Rod Serling. My character of Dr. Stockton believed he was doing the most reasonable thing with his shelter, but it turned out he had hopelessly misjudged the results of his actions. We had a wonderful cast and an excellent director, a happy company and crew, and a fascinating script. When I saw the episode years later, I didn't like my performance. I thought I had overacted, but the script, direction, and cast made it work. His wife, Grace Stockton, is played by Peggy Stewart, who you might have seen recently playing Sylvia in the American version of The Office. Young Paul Stockton, who would have been about 14 at this point, carried on acting until 1986, but went on to work as a historian, writer and college professor, and is now retired, raising horses in Kentucky. So the broadcast is out, and now our characters are running round with only one thing on their minds, survival
2: how's it going bill well it's going fine jerry we're collecting water which is what you should be doing well we collected about 30 gallons and then the water stopped
3: Did your stop too? jerry early? you better get on home and get into your shelter in, 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 into your basement and i'd board up the windows if i were you you got a wood body or
2: anything Little, we don't have any cellar remember the advantages of modern architecture we got the only brand new house in the block we I'm get sorry. everything at your beck and call everything at your fingertips even got an electric laundry room right off the kitchen all the wonders of modern science taken into account except that thing that's heading for us right now jerry come on I bring Martha and the kids over here? Over here? Well, we're, we're sitting ducks over there. Sitting ducks? We don't have any protection at all. Oh,
3: Jerry. You can use our basement.
2: Your basement? What about your shelter? We've got to get into a shelter. It's the only place we can survive. I don't have any room, Jerry. There's not near enough room or supplies or anything. It's designed for three people. Well, we'll bring our own food. We'll bring our own water. We'll, <laughs> we'll sleep standing up if necessary. Please, Bill, you've got to help me.
1: One of the Twilight Zone episodes that this one gets compared to most is... The monsters are due on Maple Street. And there's a similar kind of escalation that happens when neighbor turns on neighbor. But what I think the shelter does better is the escalation of the panic and the infighting seems a lot more natural here. Maple Street has to reach a point where things advance and people have to accept that this thing might be caused by martians so it's it's quite a big leap and i think i remember commenting that that's a bit of a hang up in that episode for me that they have to go from one level to another by swallowing this kind of idea that martians might be doing this and that's quite a big hill to climb in 20 or so minutes but in the shelter it does seem that much more natural because they don't have to swallow this strange elements they're reacting to something that at the time seems real and something that is happening instantly there and then the first neighbor to land and try and get into the shelter is Jerry Harlow played by Jack Albertson he would have been in his early 50s at this point and I enjoy him in this episode he was a very beloved actor especially for a generation of children who grew up watching him as Grandpa Joe, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But I think there are several things on his resume that he was beloved for before that, because he did have a really good screen presence. His wife, Martha Harlow, was played by Joe Helton, who was also in On Thursday We Leave For Home. But her acting credits actually stop in 1967, only to begin again in 2014, and one of the films she was in recently was Dumb and Dumber 2 and she's also in a film coming out in 2017 so it's nice to know that she's still around and working. So things are starting to escalate quickly now and next Marty and his wife arrive.
2: Bill! Bill! It's Mom. We've got the kids with us! Please
3: let us in Bill. Marty! Marty, I would if I could! Do you understand? I swear
2: to you, I would. Bill, please. Please, Bill, it's Marty.
3: I can't, Marty. Don't stand there asking me. I can't. I can't, and I won't.
2: I feel sorry for you then, Bill. I really do. You probably will survive, but you'll have blood on your hands. You're a doctor! You're supposed to help people!
3: a million years ago a million years ago
1: even at this point Bill has an idea that this is changing everything he says that was a million years ago now Marty Weiss is played by Joseph Bernard and IMDB lists him as an actor and director but he only had one episode of the flying nun in 1969 in his directing credits He has acting credits going back about 10 years at this point but only in a handful of roles but things would pick up from here on in and as well as appearances in shows like star trek he also appeared in movies like murder incorporated and ice station zebra now mrs weiss who doesn't even get a first name is played by Mariah Turner not much to say about Mariah she only had 16 acting credits to her name and unfortunately she doesn't seem to have much luck with names in any of those roles either she's credited as teacher woman and switchboard operator in her last few roles so the characters are reacting to this situation let's take a moment to put ourselves back in 1961 We watch this now in a troubled world, but not a world where our governments, here in England, and America at least, are advising us to build bomb shelters. Now they are still out there, there are companies that exist that will build a bomb shelter for you, but for most of us this isn't a consideration. We watch this from a completely different time. Now I remember moving into a house in the 80s that had a bomb shelter left over from the Second World War, but... It was a different kind of shelter one that was made to shield you from a blast if your house was blown up the shelter in this show is a nuclear shelter which is meant to be sealed to keep you alive in the event of a nuclear attack so how much of a real possibility was this wikipedia says that the episode aired after a summer in which the fallout shelter had loomed large in national discourse due to the berlin crisis of 1961. Meeting with US President John F. Kennedy in Vienna, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev insisted, not for the first time, that NATO troops withdraw from Berlin, handing over the city to an independent Soviet-aligned East Germany. Khrushchev explicitly threatened thermonuclear war if the United States refused to relent, and Kennedy responded publicly seven weeks later in a televised address on 25th of July, 1961. And during the speech, Kennedy stated his intention to ensure access to shelters in the event of a nuclear attack in the United States. And apparently in the aftermath of the speech, numerous companies began producing such shelters and products were sold with explicit reference to the shelters. Now, most of us will hopefully never have to construct a shelter, but they are still out there. You can still get someone to build you a custom shelter, or you can make one yourself. Now, there is a website called atomica.co.uk that lists all the different type of shelters that you can do, and the kind of most basic one, the bottom of the line, they call the Type 1A. They call it an easily constructed improvised garden shelter using household materials and it says this shelter is suitable for areas where underground shelters are impractical for example where there is a high water table so that a deep hole fills it with water it can be constructed using only materials which are generally available and could be built at a time of crisis it would take two people about 24 hours each to build And the shelter consists of a shallow trench dug into the ground with a roof of doors or sheet timber that is supported above ground level by earth walls. The structure is then covered by at least 18 inches of earth. And it says this basic design will give good protection from fallout radiation, particularly if the occupants keep away from the entrance area. Now they have a picture of this on the website, and it is essentially a a trench with a sort of raised area above the ground. You couldn't stand up in it. You would essentially be on your knees. And, you know, I guess it's just a case of how much you really want to survive if the bomb's going to drop. Because I could imagine that it would be a miserable existence being in that thing, you know. I suppose as a short-term thing... In the hope that something better came along, like the government would, you know, start pulling people out and housing them somewhere else or whatever, then perhaps it's a consideration, but having to stay in it for any length of time would be quite miserable, especially when the world around you is just blown up and there's radiation and and so on, it's quite a horrifying thought. But Bill and his family, well they went the expense of Ruth and they have their shelter built in underneath their home. So we are dealing with something here that has real-world sort of connotations, so Sailing did send the script away to be fact-checked. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grahams Jr. writes, the major concern the DeForest research group had regarding the script was the announcement being broadcast over Conrad. Comments such as a state of martial law is hereby declared, was considered inaccurate because no reference to a state of martial law was found in either of the yellow or red alert announcements. It was suggested that one comment, no commercial traffic of any kind will be permitted on the streets and highway, be eliminated because a yellow alert did not ban vehicles, but rather gave detailed instructions for local dispersal movement via automobile. Sailing suggested in his script that, Off in the distance we can see searchlights. Sailing suggested in his script that, Off in the distance we can see searchlights, but DeForest suggested that line be removed because, with the high speed and high altitude of modern aircraft and missiles, the searchlight had become obsolete and was no longer used as anti aircraft defence. Sailing also had in his script, The angry screaming cries of the people ring in their ears. Andy Forrest pointed out that the heavy door required by shelters would muffle the outdoor sound. So Bill and his family are not in a trench in their back garden. They've went the expensive route and they have this underground shelter built. So about halfway through the episode, things are starting to get really ugly.
3: Jerry, ask him again! Ask him again!
2: Please, I, I don't want to you be we're here. You're not safe
1: Please! Frank, the only
2: let's police. go home again! No please! Time. It'll land please. any minute. I just know it'll so land any minute. He won't let anybody in.
1: Oh, what'll we do?
2: I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to find one basement to go to work on that. Pool all of our stuff food, water, everything. I tell you, it just isn't fair. He's down there in a bomb shelter, perfectly safe, while our kids have to sit around and wait for a bomb to drop. Why don't we just go down to his basement and break down the door? Frank, Frank, wait a minute, Frank!
1: As is often the case, I think the women in the episode aren't given a great deal to do except for standing behind the men and shrieking. To be fair, nobody comes off well in this episode, and that's the point. It's the ugliness within rising to the surface, but the women just seem to be reduced to these shrieking things standing in the background. Now Jerry actually has a pretty decent idea, why don't the rest of us pool our resources and hole up in one of the basements? But it's the arrival of the last couple that kind of puts pay to that. In our last couple is Frank Henderson, played by Sandy Kenyon, and it wasn't too long ago that we saw him in the Odyssey of Flight 33. He's the one who kind of looks like a stretched out version of Rod Serling and Mrs. Henderson is played by Mary Gregory, and The Shelter is always compared to The Monsters of Joe on Maple Street, and she was actually in that episode, where she played Sally. She was also in The Lateness of the Hour in season two, but this was her last Twilight Zone episode, although she did pop up in Night Gallery years later in the segment, The Different Ones. What I find interesting about The Shelter is how It is basically a microcosm of how society as a whole reacts in times of hardship. There is a certain amount of animosity between the haves and the have-nots, you could look at it that way, but there's also the way that it's the normal people, the regular people who turn on each other. No one's actually complaining about the government that let a situation like this happen, who created a political climate where being bombed by another country was an actual possibility now granted maybe it isn't a place for that kind of discussion because it's all about survival at this point that's something maybe for another time but what is interesting is that what also usually happens is animosity builds towards the other the outsider
2: Jerry, Jerry. You know him better than any of us. You're his best friend. Go down there again. Talk to him. Plead with him. Tell him to pick out one family. We'll we'll draw lots or or something. One family? Meaning yours, Marty, huh? Why not? I've got a three-month-old baby. What difference does that make? Is your baby any more precious than one of my kids? I never said that. Look, if you're going to argue about who deserves to live more than the next one, you shut your mouth, white easy, friend. let go! That's the way it is when the foreigners come over here. Pushy, grabby, semi-Americans!
1: So the tragedy of this kind of situation is that the people who are left out in the cold will turn on each other instead of focusing on where the problem really lies. And that is often the design of those who are the cause of the problem, those in power better to have people focus on fighting each other, than focus on where the real problem is.
2: If we do that, we we'll let all those people know that we have a shelter on our street. we we'll would have a whole mob to contend with a whole bunch of strangers. Sure, what right have they got to come over here? This
5: isn't their street, this isn't their shelter.
2: Oh, oh this is our shelter. And on the next street that's another country. Patronise home industry. You fools. You're insane, all of you. Maybe you don't want to live, Jerry. Maybe
5: you don't care. I care.
2: Believe me, I care. I want to see the morning sun come up, too. But you're acting like a mob, and a mob doesn't have any brains. You're proving it by what you're doing. I say, let's get that battering ram, and we'll tell Klein to keep his mouth shut as to why we want it. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I agree with Jerry. We should stop and think a minute. Nobody, no, nobody cares what you think. You or no, your I think, kind. No, I, I thought that I that made it clear upstairs. Yes, but I think that just. I still think. Has I something. think. I think the first order of business is to get you out of here.
1: The first order. The first order of business is to get you out of here. Where do you draw the line? And when a line is drawn, what's to stop another line being drawn closer in? What's to stop someone else deciding that? Another person, another group, is then causing more problems. The country line becomes the town line, becomes the street line, becomes the race line, becomes the gender line, sexuality, whatever it is. And who decides where these lines are anyway? Because at some point, you might end up on the other side of one. Rod Serling would come back to this idea years later in his Christmas special, A Carol, For Another Christmas, with a character called Imperial Me, played by Peter Sellers. Not particularly subtle in that one, but the point was that Serling was illustrating that the logic of prejudice ultimately led to the exclusion of everyone, because there's always going to be something that people dislike or blame, and the more things that are added to the list... The more the lines become closer and closer until, in effect, you're just left with the individual. Serling's viewpoint was that there is no end to prejudice and that a person who says, Well, I want that group of people gone, whether that be a race or whatever. If they get their wish, they don't just then sit back behind their white picket fences and enjoy this supposed utopia they've created. Because that's not how prejudiced people work. There will always be someone next on the list. Someone they perceive as being the cause of the problems. So the line draws in closer and closer. At this point in the story the character of Jerry Harlow played by Jack Albertson is actually questioning what's going on. He was the first to come and see Bill but it started to escalate and he begins to see that this isn't right and he questions the mob and the mob mentality he questions the whole thing now at the beginning of the show I posed the question can the Twilight Zone ever be too preachy well in the Twilight Zone companion Mark Zickrey says the plot of the shelter is simple unfortunately in making his point which is that everyone is rotten in a crisis Serling did not pay enough attention to logic and characterization the people are clearly cardboard cutouts being moved around as the story dictates. One character, Joseph Bernard, violently objects to battering down the door of the shelter in order to get in. Yet a moment later, is one of those manning the battering ram. This clearly is not logical, dramatic progression, but rather a too obvious and heavy-handed manipulation by the writer. I can kind of see where he's coming from but it was more the character of Jerry Harlow who was becoming the voice of reason and really objecting to what was going on then. He does do an about turn and start battering down the door and it was Marty Weiss who was played by Bernard who was kind of to a lesser degree doing the same thing but then he also ends up manning the battering ram. Is it a deal breaker though? You know, I don't think so. Both men have been backwards and forwards in this thing, and this show is about mob mentality. It was only a couple of hours before that these were all friends around a dinner table before they got caught up in this, so... During the melee, during the escalation, if things do go up another notch, then yes, they could get caught up in it all over again. Because yes, they may be the voice of reason one moment... But then it looks like someone else is going to get into the shelter, so that survival instinct might just kick in again. Yes, they might have settled for nobody going into the shelter, but would they settle for someone else getting into the shelter? That's the question. It's interesting to note though that in his novelization of this story in the book, New Stories from the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling doesn't explicitly say that Jerry or Marty take part in battering down the door. In that story, there seems to be a few more faceless neighbours around and it's more of an indistinct mob who batter down the door than specifically those two men. And when they do, in the book version, Bill gets a chunk of flesh taken out of his head from the debris. So, memories of the Simpsons episode here, they're kind of parodies this, where the whole town is outside the shelter banging on the door to be let in.
4: The President of the United States has just announced that the previously unidentified objects have now been definitely ascertained as being satellites. Repeat, there are no enemy missiles approaching.
1: Mark Zikri calls this obvious and heavy-handed, and perhaps I would agree if I didn't think it was so accurate. There are so many things that actually ring true in this episode that it's quite painful to watch. When things are good, it's a picture of the ideal neighbourhood, barbecues and card games, but the moment things go bad, that veneer of respectability goes, and it goes fast. We only need to look around us to see that this is a microcosm of what happens in society when things go bad. There are so many things that I think we can recognize here, you know? Anyone who has ever lived in the shadow of racism probably recognizes that when things are good, perhaps they're tolerated, but the moment things go bad it's just an excuse for racist behavior to be, in quotes, justified. And the whole communities blamed for the actions of the few. I believe this situation, and I believe the escalation from Happy Neighborhoods to Angry Mob. The escalation itself is pitched well, but it's the excruciating aftermath that really sells it for me. Everyone has now seen everyone else, without their masks of respectability. I especially like Frank Henderson, played by Sandy Kenyon, when he's one moment overjoyed that it was a false alarm. And then the realization of what's just happened and what he's done washes over him and he tries to apologize. But even then, it's not a full, genuine apology. He's not saying he was wrong. He's saying, I went off my rocker. You can understand that, can't you? So he's telling him that he needs to forgive him rather than asking for his forgiveness.
3: I don't know. I don't know what normal is. I thought I did once. I don't anymore.
2: I told you we'd pay for the damages, Bill.
3: Damages? I wonder. I wonder if any one of us has any idea what those damages really are. Maybe one of them is finding out what we're really like when we're normal. The kind of people we are, just underneath the skin. I mean all of us. A lot of naked, wild animals who put such a price on staying alive that they'll claw their neighbors to death just for the privilege. We were spared a bomb tonight, but I wonder, I wonder if we weren't destroyed even without it.
1: Now the speech in the book is slightly different and maybe it does go a little too far. He says, the damages I'm talking about are the pieces of ourselves that we've pulled apart tonight, the veneer, the thin veneer that we ripped aside with our own hands The hatred that came to the surface, that we didn't even realise we had. But oh Jesus, how quick it came out. And how quickly we became animals. All of us. He pointed to himself. Me too, maybe I was the worst of the bunch. I don't know. He paused for a moment and looked around. I don't think it'll be normal again. At least not in our lifetime. And if, God forgive, that bomb does fall. I hope we've made our peace before we suffer it. I hope that if it has to kill and destroy and maim, the victims will be human beings, not naked wild beasts who put such a premium on staying alive that they claw their neighbours to death just for the privilege. He shook his head and then very slowly turned to look up towards the kitchen. That's what the damage has been, he said, and he started up the steps. It's having to look at ourselves in a mirror and see what's underneath the skin and suddenly realising that underneath, we're an ugly race of people. So while it's saying the same thing, I think what's actually in the episode is a bit more believable as something someone would say in the moment. What's in the book is perhaps a bit too articulate on what the message for the whole thing is. Now, we've spoken in the past about the Twilight Zone having a point of view. It's Rod Serling's point of view, of course, but what The Shelter does, I think, is slightly different. There's definitely a point of view in there, highlighting things like the scapegoating in times of crisis and so on. But I think it also asks the audience, what would you do? And while we can certainly point out areas in the story where we think people behave badly, When we put ourselves in those roles, it's not an easy spot to be in. Now take Bill, he's prepared for this, he's prepared the shelter to save his family, he's saved for it, he's built it, and now it's paid off. Should he really risk his family because nobody else has prepared the same way he has? But on the other hand, you're in a situation where your family will likely die if they don't get into that shelter. What would you do? There's a point of view here, but there's also uncertainty. And if it's there, it's because Rod Sailing himself was uncertain about that too.
5: Now, 20 and a half minutes before 10 on the KNX clock the time. 20 and a half before 10. We promised 13 different people this morning we would ask you this question about a a Twilight Zone that was on about a month or so ago. It was concerning fallout shelters. Now, on this, you must have had quite a bit of reaction.
0: We had 1300 letters and cards inside of two days. Uh, I think we hit some kind of a nerve. It was a show called The Shelter about a doctor who was the only guy in the neighborhood who had the presence of mind and the foresight to build a shelter. Yeah. And uh, when there's a yellow alert sounding why he runs into the shelter with his wife and child and all the neighbors are left high and dry and they turn into animals. And uh, I used the show I wrote it because I felt number one it had great immediacy. Uh, We've been talking at home my wife and me about Possibility of building a shelter. Yeah, and uh, we were struck with the moral and ethical problem: of what would happen if, you know, there were an alert sounding? Yeah, we got into our shelter happily because we built one, and neighbors with children came to the door and said, "Please let us in." Well, that was the problem. I, I can't answer it. And I don't know what is the ethical rightness and justice of this. I, I haven't figured
5: it out yet. It, it is a very controversial thing because uh, uh, they. I saw a panel discussion just about a week or so ago on this. And they had uh, some learned men on the panel, one gentleman with civil defense, another who was in the clergy, Catholic uh, priest, a Jesuit priest. And uh, they all had different opinions. One gentleman said in particular, until the government starts building them themselves uh, public shelters, I can't see where there's this immediacy is here. The, you know, why should I go out and spend two or three thousand dollars to build one if the government isn't bothering? This was his feeling. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine when I saw your show that night, which was this problem in its, uh, in its most dramatic uh, terms. Here was a family in their shelter, as you said, and here were the neighbors. What do you do? You carry a gun with you, shoot them off, or what do you do? And your show finally ended, uh, how did, it ended now with, uh, it, it was a false alarm.
0: It was a yellow alert, which turned out to be nothing. But I think the essence of our philosophical comment at the end was that for the human race, uh, to survive, it has to remain civilized.
5: Now, was that the ending that you wanted to take, or did you want to leave it a little bit stronger? Than no, because I'm not one of those,
0: quote, knowledgeable men, Bob. No. I don't know. I, I I was up in the air about it, morally and ethically. I didn't know how to end that thing. I, I didn't know what position, uh, philosophically, I could take.
5: Are you yourself building a shelter?
0: No, we're not now. Were you? I, for a while, we, we thought very seriously of it. Yeah, we we did. Yeah. And now we've decided that, uh, no, we're not going to build it. Why? Uh, Well, for very realistic, you know, stringently realistic reasons, that it's my feeling now that if we survive, what do we survive for? Uh, What kind of a world do we go into? You know, if it's rubble and poison water and unedible food and my kids have to live like wild beasts, I'm not particularly sure I want to survive in that kind of a world. This is the... uh, the happy, this is the happy show,
5: Bob, and, uh, <laughs> well, yuck this... it up again, Bob. No, but the reason I'm asking, this week happens to be the Bill of Rights week, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. And, and, uh, this is, uh, what we're all fighting for, supposedly, and, which is a serious subject in itself, you can't joke around about the Bill of Rights. And, uh, no, I just wanted to get your, uh, your own opinion. What, what do you think of the Bill of Rights? Well, I'm delighted, Uh,
0: (laughs) wonderful
1: having having this chat, Bob, and I'm
0: glad you asked me that.
1: So I myself don't go with the heavy-handed thing. I think it's a very fine episode of the Twilight Zone. And it is one of those Twilight Zones with no unexplained or supernatural elements, but it doesn't get sort of highlighted that way the same as something like The Silence does, because I think this one is so rod-sailing. This is such, it's so in the realms of the kind of things he would comment on that I don't think people really question this one. As Twilight Zones go, it's certainly a downer. We don't have the comfort of the unexplained. This is just human behavior at its most raw and most ugly. No moral, no message,
0: no prophetic tract. Just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race has to remain civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic, from the Twilight Zone.
1: Let's hear what the listeners think in submitted for your approval. I've had an email from a friend of the show, Chad, and he says, congrats on the Patreon campaign. Yours is a show that listeners like myself are quite happy to be able to support. The fifth dimension readings are an excellent bonus and can open up some doors for future content. I've always been a fan of the TZ, having fond memories of seeing a few random episodes growing up, the show made a big impression. But had I not discovered your podcast by happenstance on a long drive late one night, I likely never would have invested in the Blu-ray set and decided to watch each episode. I'm finding that most of them are now new to me. After quite some time I have finally caught up with the podcast and just saw the episode that is next in line for review on your show. As a celebration, I thought I would offer a few thoughts on the Season 3 Episode 3, The Shelter the first episode I have seen, for which no podcast already exists. Keep up the great work, and thanks for producing an excellent podcast. The shelter, like the monsters are due on Maple Street, shows how easily kindness and civilization can break down when fear is at work. The crashing of the dinner table on the way to break down the shelter door is a striking bit of symbolism. The internal racist violence to claiming that Your kind is lesser than, and the unprovoked punch to the face of the immigrant was so reminiscent of the exact same white supremacist violence that took place during last year's Trump rallies that I literally saw the footage of one of those assaults in my mind's eye when it happened on the show. On the heels of the episode two, I have to agree with your earlier sentiments that while TZ was excellent in furthering humanistic and anti-racist content, It did no such thing for advancing the representation of women. This episode is no exception. As the wife of the doctor stalls their progress in getting settled into the shelter by dropping glasses, having constant emotional breakdowns and wanting them all to give up and die before getting a paternalistic lecture from the man of the house. Another observation, just as with Maple Street, it's a little boy that brings the news of doom. There seems to be a repeating motif at work here. Isn't it always a child who brings the news of doom, if not the doom itself? In horror and suspense films, The Shining is a shining example. I have an armchair theory on this based on an ancient Italian statue I once saw. The statue appeared to simply be an older man wrestling a younger man. As I read the placard on the statue, I learned this was in fact a son attempting to strangle his father, and the father was struggling for his life against the son. In films, children are always cherished and touted as the future, but they also represent their parents' doom. As the children grow, we decline. Perhaps this subconscious reality is reflected in that horror motif of the children as the messengers of death. The show's ending where the protagonist notes that none of them yet can comprehend the extent of the damages was excellent in its double meaning. They didn't know the money damages, but the real damages made by their fear and violence are the damages that money can't remedy. Thanks as always for adding so much to the Twilight Zone canon. Well, thank you, Chad, and thank you for supporting me on Patreon, too, and also sending in such a thoughtful email. Thank you very much. Now, long-time friend of the show, Uncommon NASA, has sent in some thoughts in an
6: audio clip. So let's take a listen. Hey, Tom, this is Uncommon NASA. Wanted to leave some audio feedback for The Shelter. Definitely a favorite episode of mine, and there's a couple of interesting things about it. In my opinion, um, as you pointed out in your last episode, a lot of times Rod Serling would take a second bite of the apple and reapproach things a second and third time. And I think that was sort of a thing that he did artistically that is underrated or sometimes taken the wrong way. I think oftentimes you'll hear walking distance compared to um, Willoughby, uh, but you don't often hear Monsters Adieu on Maple Street compared to The Shelter. And I think that it should be because I think the shelter is a is a vast improvement over monsters that do on Maple Street. The intensity in the scenes, as uh, the family prepares, and uh, you know the the young boy is running all over the house trying to help his dad, trying to be cool, trying to be you know the, uh, a second man at the house. The 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 nervousness of the mother—it's uh, all really right in your face—and then all that builds up to you know the fact that you've got all these other families coming in that want what they have. And in the end, there really aren't any good guys in this episode because on one hand, the obvious uh, villains are sort of all these other families that turn on each other and come and they try to steal this man's shelter that he built with his own time and money. But at the end of the day, they're no better either because they're huddled away in this shelter and they're willing to just let everyone die outside. Not make that choice. Um, there's a quote in it where somebody screams, "You know, you're a doctor, you're supposed to help people um, that I thought was really good. Um, I thought everything was really talked together really well in this episode. There's one scene in particular that might go under the radar where some of the families come back in the house. And they're standing in the dining room and they're trying to figure out how to get him to open the shelter. And there's a shot of some of the kids and they're just running their hands through the cake that's left over from the birthday party from earlier. And they're not even paying attention. They can't even grasp what's happening and they're not caught up in some of the hatreds and some of the biases that the parents are getting into. Which brings me to another point Um, in terms of like the, the Frank character. Um, who starts to get into like you know but you're not one of us and those sorts of attitudes toward um, I think Marty is the other character and you know these are things that really weren't done probably that much on television in 1961 or so when this aired and I found that really fascinating and I think that it's really important to note I just think the drama in this is so heavy and it's so so real is the only way to really describe it. You know, as a as a young guy, as a young boy I should say, I remember my family preparing for a, for a hurricane. Um when I was really young, my family lived in Long Island. A hurricane was coming and we had to prepare things and we were bordering up the windows, but we didn't have a basement, we didn't have a cellar, and we had to basically huddle in the middle of the of the home. It was a one level home and um it was a, a bathroom. And so the three of us sat in the bathroom for probably eight hours with nothing but, you know, a bunch of random supplies, and that was our shelter. So I kind of identify from that aspect, and then as an adult, as a young adult, you know, 9-11 hitting New York, um, I kind of understand it from that perspective too. There's a point where they say um, we're only such and such miles away from New York, and you know New York's going to get it, and that was sort of like the way that I think people think still to this day about terrorism in this region um, and it shows, you know, 50 years later, the attitudes were very similar. I feel like this episode holds a special weight post 9-11 because pre 9-11, there really wasn't an attack like that, you know, and now it's it's so much heavier. And you cross-reference that with what's going on in America these days with the current president, um, you know, and, and, and some of the attitudes that he's unfortunately bringing out in people. And... You know, you see it play out, and and I can tell you as an American listener, you know, the way that these characters are acting is what I would fully expect to happen if this situation was given to them. You know, monsters are new on Maple Street. There's a lot of like, no, he's the alien, he's the alien, and it kind of just goes on and on and on. Um, and to me, it becomes a little bit unrealistic, where eventually people would, you know, it, it's kind of like a forced panic the way that it's done, whereas this everything flows so perfectly uh, and in just 22 minutes or however long the episode is, you're able to get a full crux of like friendship, kinship, neighborhood to complete breakdown. And it doesn't feel forced and it doesn't feel fake. It feels like something that could really happen, not just in 1961, but in 2017. So I love the episode. Uh, you can check me out uh, at uncommon nasa.com. Uh, I am a musician, Um, And I do have some music that uh, is inspired by Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone on my site that anyone could check out if they are so interested. Thanks.
1: You know, NASA's been a friend of the show for a good while now, and I always enjoy his thoughts when he chimes in on episodes, so thank you for sending that in, and I always encourage people to send clips in like that because I do like to mix it up on the show with different voices, so if you want to send some feedback in by way of audio clip, then please do, and it would be, it'd be good to hear from you. So thank you, NASA, and thank you, Chad, as well. If you wanna get in touch with me, you can do that by Facebook, facebook.com slash twilightzonepodcast. You can email me at tom at the On Twitter, it's twilightzonenet. Or if you wanna support the show on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast and i've had a a lot of great support from people uh since i set that up and it's it's been really sort of humbling and uh, nice to see and i've kind of nailed it down now to to what the reward levels are and so on so there's like a one dollar reward level where you get that extra podcast the fifth dimension Uh, there's a two dollar reward level where you get the fifth dimension and you also get fifth dimension radio which is me presenting some old time radio shows for you as a sort of you know picking and choosing some of my favorites for you to listen to and and putting that in the form of a show and if i reach my next target uh, then i will activate the three dollar donation level which is a podcast that i've always wanted to do and if we get to that level then it's something i will do and that is Lawgiver, a Planet of the Apes podcast, because like I said last time round, I think, you know, the Twilight Zone, each episode is self-contained, and there are themes running through and different tropes and so on that we can point out, but I've always wanted to apply the same level of research and detail as I do with the Twilight Zone podcast to a mythology. That's what I'd really like to do with Lawgiver, Planets of the Apes podcast, where I would be looking at things like the movies, the television shows, the animated series, uh, the tie-in books, there's a lot of those behind the scenes, Uh, the comic books, and not only that, but the unproduced scripts, the scripts that came out uh, before the movies actually got made. Now, a special episode of the Twilight Zone podcast Uh, that I'm going to be working on behind the scenes, is taking a look at Rod Serling's unproduced script for Planet of the Apes. So that's going to be a special Twilight Zone podcast. And in a way, I think Lawgiver, if I reach that level and start to do that, is going to kind of be a spin-off of that, which uh, which I think is quite an interesting direction to take it in. So, you know, hopefully we get there, and, and with your help, I think we might be able to. But anyway, that's enough from me. So let's hand over to Rod Serling to find out what comes next.
0: And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, we move back in time to April 1865, the aftermath of the Civil War and a strange, dusty road that leads to a most unbelievable adventure. On our show next week, The Passersby. This one is for Civil War buffs, the mystics amongst you, or any and all who would want a brief vacation in the Twilight Zone.
4: Sure and watch Gunsmoke, starring James Arness, Saturday nights over most of these same stations.